In our last episode, we met Joe Maloney's daughter, Karen, who since the mid-1970s has wondered where he went. Even in her wildest imagination, she could never have thought he'd come to Ireland to build himself a new life. Nor could she have imagined he'd ever risk returning back over the Atlantic as an FBI-wanted fugitive. Right? He was a very sociable person. He had a gift of the gab, so to speak. I'm Pavel Barter. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Runaway Joe. Episode 6, Closing the Net. When Joe Maloney first went on the run to Ireland in late 1967, early 68, he began living under the name Michael O'Shea and worked on a fishing trawler out of South Dublin until he sustained some kind of a stomach injury. I met him when I was doing my internship in St. Michael's in the Leary Hospital. There's a team of us working behind this series. My colleague Nicolene managed to find and track down Dr Brian Hanlon, who attended to Michael O'Shea's stomach woes back in 1969. Recently arrived in Ireland and not long on the run, the newly named Michael O'Shea appears to have done everything in his power to stay away from hospital away from the system, until he couldn't. Michael O'Shea was very secretive because he uh, he had no insurance and he didn't want any records or anything made. Ah, uh, right. And he just wanted to pay up front for anything. And we were worried about that he might have had an appendicitis. And I don't know whether he even took his appendix out. After Michael O'Shea left hospital, he stayed in touch with Dr Hanlon. Fast forward to 1976, Michael O'Shea is married to Sheila Chandler. He's the new owner of Capard House, and he decides he needs a holiday. So, he visits his friend, Dr Hanlon, who was by now living in Canada. That was his first trip outside of Ireland since he came to Ireland, to my knowledge. He came for a couple of weeks. I know when he applied to get a passport to come to Canada, he had some problems uh, getting the passport. Michael O'Shea managed to fly out of Ireland and into Toronto, and from there travelled to Wingham, Ontario. Outside of Toronto. He stayed in my house. I lived on my own. The FBI, the Irish Gardaí, they knew none of this. After a few days, Michael took off. And I loaned him my sports car to Corvette, and he took off to Montreal for five or six days. We believe it's possible Michael may have crossed the border into the United States, back to Rochester, to the scene of the crime, which was only a four-hour drive from Dr Hanlon's place near Toronto. So, Pavel, fill us in on the background and how Gardi first came in contact with Joe Maloney. This is back... On the day we released episodes one and two of this series, I appeared on a number of Irish radio programmes, including RTE's Morning Ireland, talking about runaway Joe and appealing for new information. And even though he'd now be a very old man, there could be people who'd listen to this documentary series and maybe they'd have information. Someone somewhere knows what 
became of Joseph Maloney. Within hours, people who knew Joe Maloney, a.k.a. Michael O'Shea, when he lived here in Ireland, started contacting us. I'm Fiona Deverell. I was Fiona James when I grew up in Met Malik, and I remember life at Capard in the 80s. During her teenage years in the early 1980s, Fiona regularly visited Capard House, the stately home which Michael O'Shea owned in the Midlands of Ireland, to go pony trekking with her sister and the German housekeeper at Capard. And we had the run of the mountain. I mean, I, I never knew where the boundaries were for that estate. You would just set off and you'd go up to the top of the mountain and ride around through the woods and come out on the top and come back down whenever you felt like it. It was amazing, freedom. After pony trekking, Fiona and her sister would return to the house for lunch, oftentimes with Michael O'Shea and his wife, Sheila. He had a very strong American accent. There's absolutely no way that that man could have faked an Irish accent. Since arriving in Ireland on the run, Michael O'Shea's story was that he was Irish from Kerry. But here, within the safety of his Capard house and estate, he occasionally reverted back into Joe Maloney. His accent to me was American, for sure. And he didn't make any secret of the fact that he had come or he'd begun his life in, in America. That was not a secret. By now, Joe Maloney was living his best life as Michael O'Shea, and he fully embraced the Lord of the Manor role in Capard, as Fiona remembers. Tall, film star bearing. Maybe he wasn't the best looking, but he carried himself like he was, you know, Paul Newman or something. He was, you would know when he was in a room. He had a tan or freckles, but he certainly had that outdoor Irishy, but the American hair, the American parting on his hair, and the height. The FBI's wanted poster for Joe Maloney, which continued to circulate worldwide throughout all the time he was here in Capard. That put him at six foot three inches in height and 170 pounds in weight, just over 12 stone. And also the way he dressed, jeans. You know, a man, you know, in his 30s and 40s wouldn't have been wearing jeans back in the 80s. I don't think my dad really ever did. Fiona's father had made friends with Michael O'Shea. He was taken by Michael's love of cars and guns, a shared interest for them both, which included clay pigeon shooting on the estate. It was easy to like Michael. There was a show element to it. I mean, there was a glamour to it, I think, that maybe my dad was a bit attracted to. He always liked that kind of uh, life. He liked history, he liked artefacts. So they would go rummaging around in the house looking for old bits of furniture and things like that. And he was, you know, quite magnetic. My father was very uh, attracted to his uh, stories. So, I, But that's what they were. Through Fiona, we're learning about a side of Michael O'Shea we knew little of. Despite being on the run, in Capard, Michael became known for hosting the best parties around. There were always a lot of cars at the weekends. He'd have friends up. He'd have uh, lunch parties, dinner parties. He liked to mix drinks. <laughs> he liked to make cocktails. And I remember having lunch there with my parents. And it was the first time I'd ever tasted cheesecake. Oh, he, he didn't stand out. and he was, he was a great man for parties. 
another local man who contacted us since this series began publishing is Sean Wisely, and he too attended some of these parties. I play music, you know, an accordion, and, but every, every other night he'd bring me, he'd, he'd be having a session in the house, you know. He was a great man for parties, great crack at the parties, and he'd have big crowds in, and all the neighbours would be up there drinking to no end. Michael O'Shea appeared to now have it all. Wealth, assets, a wife, a country estate. He was a party host who sometimes liked to mix cocktails. But if we know anything about Joe Maloney, it's his ability to put on an act. Back to Rochester, New York, where we're with prosecutor Wendy Lehman. Wendy looked into Joe Maloney's assets in Ireland and found that, as Michael O'Shea partied away at Capard House, he was borrowing heavily against his stately asset. My husband, Gary Lehman, who's a college professor and but also at that point a real estate broker, I asked him to look into records to see if Maloney held any real estate holdings. And he found the transfer of, of, of some property called Capert House. And we have all those documents. My co-producer Tim is reading the deeds of Capard House contained within the Rochester DA case files. Capert House, Rosenhall's County Leash. In the property, the amount owing said judgment is stated to be 514,418 pounds and 27 pence. Boil down. It means that... In 1981, they owed a half a million pounds. That was a lot of money. Millions in today's money. The value of Capard House had quadrupled since Michael O'Shea had bought it just six years earlier. How he was able to have borrowed more than ten times against what he'd paid for it is anyone's guess. It wasn't just money he was borrowing. He was also living on borrowed time. There was another agent that was initially assigned to this case and ultimately that agent was transferred and I took the case over. This is another new voice we've not yet heard from in this series. Gene Harding was the FBI special agent who handled Joe Maloney's case during the 1980s. What year did you arrive in Rochester? Uh, 1980, latter part of 1980. Remember, The FBI knew Maloney was in Ireland, living under the name Michael O'Shea, since he was fingerprinted as part of a routine investigation in Dublin in 1973. Based on the fact that there were warrants in Interpol, it was determined that the fingerprints match Joseph Michael Maloney. The fingerprints certainly don't lie. There was little the FBI could do due to the lack of an extradition treaty between Ireland and the United States. And so the local guardee became the eyes and ears of the FBI in monitoring Joe Maloney. Certainly, I was in touch with the homicide detectives who had that case and the local authorities. And if they came up with any leads, they would pass them over to me and I would be able to, again, send them to wherever this lead may uh, be. Fiona Deverell, who rode horses at Capard as a teenager, recalls one member of the local guardie who was a close friend of Fiona's father, warning Fiona's dad about Michael O'Shea's true identity. 
I believe they had been watching him the entire time. The guards, anyway, brought my dad in one night into the office and he showed him this FBI file. And and here was uh, Mike um, O'Shea being Joe Maloney. And yeah, it was quite a shock. My dad had to come home and tell my mum. And they didn't tell us because um, we were a bit young, I suppose. But it was in the days following that that everything changed and we, we were told we're not going up there again. Despite being under surveillance, Joe Maloney lived freely as Michael O'Shea. And throughout the early 1980s, he continued to build a career in the Irish film industry, including working with none other than a future James Bond. There is he. James Bond. Your lesson. I see you handle your weapon well. Pierce Brosnan didn't start out as James Bond. His first breakthrough came in the early 1980s on The Manions of America. Pierce Brosnan, yeah, it was his first major role. And it was a six-part series about an Irish guy who goes to America and makes good. Barry Blackmore was the assistant director in that series, working with Michael O'Shea, or Mick, as he called him. Mick was, there were guns involved, so he was probably armourer on those. Would he, working on Manions of America, have met Pierce Brosnan? Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, Pierce was a very easygoing guy. Um, and Mick O'Shea certainly would have wanted to be with the cast. You know, that's the whole, the whole allure of being in the film business is you rub shoulders with. While local police around Capard watched O'Shea from a distance, the special branch within the Garda monitored him closely. Because of the ongoing conflict in Northern Ireland, they were required to monitor the use of weaponry throughout Ireland, including on movie sets. This was in the height of the troubles as well. So anything to do with guns, they were very wary about, uh, they were very careful to make sure, you know, if you had guns on a project, you had to have the guards there and uh, the special branch. Morris O'Callaghan was the director of Soldiers of Destiny, a film being shot at Capard House in the early 80s. When we were shooting the film, there was about 20 special branch guys there every day. We wondered why they were there. They were, in fact, keeping an eye on Mick O'Shea. They knew he was there, it seems. They were watching for a long time based on the information they got from America. So these special branch guys, were they actually in Capard House? They were. One or two of them would come in if we were having dinner at night. They'd come in as well because we were all palsy-welsy, you see. Just thinking, oh, this is all great fun, you know. So they were keeping a very keen eye on everything, more than would be required simply for making a film, you know. By now, Michael O'Shea was on the brink of bankruptcy. But he hid all that. He hid it from his wife Sheila as well, we believe. Instead, he rented out Capard as a movie location, including to RTE for a hit TV series of the time, The Irish RM. 
I have applied for the post of resident magistrate in Ireland, and I've been accepted. All rise. You'll be a wonderful resident magistrate. If you want to give evidence on your own behalf... You the film activities at Capard continued to bring the Garda special branch around, but nothing suggests Michael O'Shea ever thought anyone knew he was Joe Maloney. The police watched him assiduously. You know, they'd come up and play cards and drink potching with him in the evenings, and sometimes you'd hang around for that if you weren't too busy at home. <laughs> Peter Collins, the builder who worked at Capard House. But they were, you know, they were obviously keeping a very close eye on him. If he suspected that they were watching him, he, he just accepted the friendship. It just slipped into this parallel universe that he created for himself. And, yeah, nothing could go wrong, you know, as long as it was, didn't go wrong. We don't know if Michael knew his freedom clock was running down, but during 1983, there were signs that he began to create a contingency plan with his wife, Sheila, and that plan involved gathering cash. This is the house that O'Shea sold me. Well, he didn't sell it to me, really, because he didn't own it, did he? <laughs> Chancer. <laughs> That's Annette Sullivan, another witness who has stepped forward since our appeal for information. We're in a village around 14 miles away from Capard House. We're in Castletown, small village in County Leith. William Telford, just uh, I've come out as well out to Annette's house uh, this morning. William Telford also contacted us. William used to own a hardware business in the local area. And uh, one day, which it must have been probably now in the early 80s, this gentleman arrived in and uh, he told me that he was renovating a house in Castletown and he wanted to open an account to purchase building materials and so on and so forth. The year was 1983. And the man renovating the house, Michael O'Shea. So O'Shea's pitch to you then was he had purchased this property, or so he told you, in Castletown, and he wanted you to provide the building materials for its renovation. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I suppose, is where Annette's story comes, comes in. Yes, I, uh, in 1983, um, my husband had died, my first husband, I remarried, and I um, bought... Castletown House, as it was, yeah. So anyway, we, we do the deal and we get the, get the deeds. And I go to visit my solicitor in Dublin and uh, show him the deeds. Is everything OK here? I hadn't even looked at them. And he said, uh, oh, heavens, he said. The name Michael O'Shea was nowhere to be seen on the deeds. Instead, Annette's solicitor told her the owner was noted as an Isabel Grimson. And um, a very unusual Irish name, isn't it, Annette? Do you know her? I said, no. And he said, well, hold your hat. Elizabeth Grinson is my neighbour in Glenageary. At the time when they were selling the house in Castletown, Michael and his wife Sheila purchased another property in the upmarket area of Dolkey in South Dublin, 3 Kent Terrace, for an incredibly cheap price. We're looking at a part of, of the deeds for number three. They were given to me and uh, in, in November 83. I'm a couple of doors up from Michael's former home on Kent Terrace with a neighbour. There's a, a deed here from the vendor Isabel Grimson and Isabel Grimson Miss to Sheila Chandler O'Shea. It's that name again, Isabel Grimson. That was bought for 15,000 
um, which seems very, very little in 1983 for a three-storey terraced house in Dorky. Really, really good value. The same person who apparently owned the house in Castletown. Who was she? The neighbour thinks he may have found the answer in Michael and Sheila's marriage certificate. In the certificate, Sheila's mother's name is listed as... Catherine Grimson, G-R-I-M-S-O-N, it's a strange name, comes up again. So it sounds like she, she got it from a, an in-law, all right, and there could well be um, why she got it so cheap. Isabel Grimson was in fact a maternal aunt of Sheila Chandler, Michael O'Shea's wife. Isabel inherited a number of properties around this time, which she sold in 1983, including number three Kent Terrace in Dalkey, to her niece, Sheila. This is an address we'll revisit before the end of this episode. 1983 was also the same year that this article was published in a number of Irish newspapers, on July the 14th, 1983 to be exact. Washington. The governments of the United States and Ireland signed a treaty yesterday to permit the extradition of criminal suspects seeking refuge in the other country. One official said the treaty demonstrated President Reagan's commitment to stopping terrorism. But he said the agreement would also apply to other crimes ranging from fraud to murder. With news of an extradition treaty now being openly reported in Irish media, we think this was the catalyst behind why Michael and his wife Sheila began to stockpile cash. 1983 was also the year Michael made a real effort to sell Capard House, which must have had crippling mortgage repayments as interest rates were at an all-time high, over 16%. Throughout all this time, FBI agent Gene Harding continued to keep a close eye on Michael O'Shea and he ensured the FBI had an alert system in place across all border agencies worldwide. So if he travelled, for example? Well, we would put up alerts. We would love the fact that at the time, if he would leave Ireland and go to another country where we had an extradition treaty, that would be something we would, you know, really like to happen. But unfortunately, um, as far as I know, he did not. He stayed in Ireland at the time. But Michael, as we've discovered, was not confined to Ireland. We already know he'd been to Canada. He was going back and forth to the UK for the British Army Royal Engineers reunions. And he was also going to the UK for other reasons. This despite all the surveillance around his movements. Now, do you see, just come here, over here. You might see the hole in the... Oh, you can, yeah. I'm back in Castletown in Leash with Annette Sullivan and the house Michael O'Shea tried to sell her in 1983. Do you see the hole in the wall? Oh, yes. That's where the shooting gig was. Annette's pointing at a hole in the wall where an ancient pagan stone carving dating from the 12th century used to sit, a Sheila Nagig. So Michael O'Shea took that and sold it? Yes, he got his friend to dig it out, wrapped it in newspaper, put it under the seat of the car, drove to England and sold it to some, so we figure, a museum. So we're literally looking at the repercussions of Michael O'Shea's actions it's here. It's one of his actions, there. 
The Sheila Nagig that Michael O'Shea stole. He sold it in the UK for cash in 1983, and now it's believed to be in the hands of a private collector. As to how much he got for it, we don't know, but some are now worth millions. We told FBI Special Agent Gene Harding about our discoveries around Joe Maloney, and in particular how he travelled freely outside Ireland during the 1970s and 1980s. What does all this information tell us? It would tell me that he obviously had another alias other than Michael Shea and Joseph Michael Maloney that was unknown to any authority, law enforcement authority. That's the way he was getting through customs. That could be the only way. And in the midst of all these escapades, we need to remember who Joe Maloney, who Michael O'Shea, really was. Based on the case which was investigated by the uh, Monroe County District Attorney's Office and the local police department, I think he's an individual that, in trying to uh, look at his history, the fact that he would kill his wife, you know, the mother of his child, uh, speaks volumes about the type of character that he is. Michael O'Shea knew that his fingerprints had been taken in Dublin as far back as 1973. That, surely, must have been playing on his mind. Because through 1983 and 84, together with his wife Sheila Chandler O'Shea, they continued to stockpile cash and slow down on paying any debts owed. And I remember on, uh, quite early in the relationship, his monthly account was a little bit overdue. So I telephoned him. William Telford, the builder's provider's owner near Capard House, where Michael O'Shea purchased provisions for his estate. So a couple of days later, he arrived in anyway, and uh, he came to my office. And he said, what's this about? So I explained. Oh, he said, I thought this was something serious. So he produced a vertical wallet that opened up like an accordion vertically. And there were 10 or 12 credit cards in the wallet. Now, credit cards were unusual at the time. Anybody paying bills to us, it was either cheque or cash. He picked out one of the credit cards and he was very apologetic. This was no problem whatsoever. He just overlooked the matter. So he, um, he paid, it, paid it with the credit card. Payments probably slowed down a little bit subsequently. Inevitably, William was not paid all he was owed. Peter Collins, the builder who'd worked on the house in Castletown and also in Capard, he fared much worse with Michael and Sheila O'Shea. We renovated that house for him and he left us short what at the time would have been just over £7,000. Um, but you would have built a house for £15,000 at the time. So uh, it was quite a lot of money to us. Despite being in large amounts of debt, Joe Maloney continued to work in the Irish film industry and to travel internationally. In 1984, he drove across the whole of Europe to the island of Malta to work with Pierce Brosnan again on Brosnan's breakthrough TV show, Remington Steel. O'Shea's days of living freely and out in the open were almost over. By late 1984, District Attorney Wendy Lehman was summoned to Washington with news on Joe Maloney's case. And do you remember that moment when you found out that the extradition treaty had 
been approved and the reaction within the office. I do remember going to Washington to get our Secretary of State's signature on the documents, which was, for me, a kind of an exciting moment. Um, and so I had a contact in the State Department who dealt with Ireland, and he and I communicated very regularly. I had done extraditions, obviously, cross-state, and also several um, out of the country extraditions, Canada and somewhere in the Caribbean. So that process in and of itself was not new to me. And so, as Christmas 1984 approached, Wendy began thinking that once Joe Maloney was arrested in Dublin, she'd have to fly over to attend his court case. FBI agent Gene Harding remembers this time too. Working in conjunction with the Monroe County District Attorney's Office uh, and with our headquarters, knowing that there was going to be a treaty put into place within a very short period of time. Uh, ultimately, the treaty was affirmed around 1984. We said we'd return to number three Kent Terrace. That was the house in affluent Dalkey that Michael O'Shea and his wife Sheila had bought from Sheila's aunt for a remarkably cheap 15,000 Irish pounds. Robert Power, who later owned the property on Kent Terrace, reached out to us with an incredible story to tell. I met Frank and he noted that I was living in Dalkey and in three Kent Terrace, at which point he said, well, I had some dealings with the American guy who lived there who was on the run. The Frank who Robert speaks about is Frank Mullen. Frank died in 2017. But back in 1973, he was the Dublin detective who took those critically important fingerprints of Michael O'Shea's, which led to his identification as Joe Maloney. By late 1984, with the extradition law now changing between the US and Ireland, Michael O'Shea appeared to be getting desperate and beginning to act strangely not least by suddenly ringing up Detective Frank Mullen in Dolkey Garda Station. The phone rang, and it was Michael O'Shea. So Frank thought, well, that was very strange, obviously, and he said, you might remember me, you know, we, we met in the past. Um, I wanted to tell you about something very uh, secretive that's going on at the moment. And he described that there was a drug deal going to happen, he'd been approached by somebody to do some sort of drug deal, and that he didn't want to do this, he, he wanted to stay on the right side of the law, and he wanted Frank to get involved with him in a sting operation. And what he wanted Frank to do was to come to a remote part of Kalani Heath, which although, you know, it's part of the Dalky Kalani urban area, is actually quite remote. And he wanted Frank to help him carry out a sting and, you know, arrest this person. And it sounded even stranger when Michael apparently said, and you need to come on your own because if there's any other uh, guards there, it'll frighten off the guy and so on. So it just has to be just you. Detective Frank Mullen immediately thought this has got to do with the fingerprints he took from O'Shea. That O'Shea thinks he still has them. And if he could get rid of Frank, that might in some way make O'Shea's fingerprints inadmissible and stop him getting extradited back to America. Frank thought, OK, this is completely suspicious. There's no way this is true. It sounds totally bizarre, and it's clearly aligned with uh, the fact that the law's just changed. And he knows that I know, and he's going to do me harm. 
So he arranged with the company's colleagues for them to secretly stake out the place. He went up, he met Michael, it was in the middle of nowhere on top of the heath, and uh, he could see Michael was looking shifty and he knew this was going down badly. So he told him that the two other guards were watching them, at which point Michael looked discomforted and upset. Then there was a bit of excuse making, they waited around, the alleged drug guy never turned up, and Michael went off. And when Michael left, he said, he looked around and he found, he said, in the undergrowth, a shallow grave. And he said he believed that Michael's plan was there was a gun and there was a sum of money involved also. And he said he believed Michael was going to either try and bribe him or, failing that, shoot him and put him in that grave. It appears Frank Mullen could easily have been a second possible murder victim of Joe Maloney's. Within a few short weeks of that incident up in Kalini Hill in Southside Dublin, Joe Maloney was finally arrested, and the following evening, the story of his arrest led the RTE TV news headlines. The small town of Dalkey in South County Dublin was stunned by the news that the friendly, slightly balding man who pottered around the town in Denham's was wanted in America, accused of murdering his wife. The FBI claim there's another side to the man who had a business providing cinema props. They claim he is Michael Joseph Maloney, who 18 years ago allegedly laced his wife's vodka with wood alcohol and killed her at their son's fifth birthday party. You'd think, as everyone did then, that this was the end of our story. June Fisk was going to get justice. Joe Maloney was going to be held accountable. He was safely secured in a Dublin prison to be extradited back to the US in handcuffs for what was shaping up to be a lifetime behind bars. But, like so much of this story, it never goes where you think it will. That escape was very, very clever because it's possible the two of them were in the one cell. And he was an American? That's true, yes. He paid the younger man to get him out of prison. Join us next time in Episode 7, Jailbreak. As this is a live investigation, if you have any knowledge of Joseph Maloney, a.k.a. Michael O'Shea, please contact us immediately and in confidence via documentaries at rte.ie. Runaway Joe is written, reported and produced by me, Pavel Barter and Tim Desmond. Production assistance by Nicolene Greer. Music is by Martin Kluzak and Tomasz Barrow. The sound engineer is Padder Carney. And the executive producer for RTE Documentary on One is Liam O'Brien. 